Alright, this is uh, Kenny here again. Um, this is going to be a little bit of a different Time Traveler's Guide. Um, this has been a thing I've wanted to do for a while, and it's been bouncing around in my head, but I'm lazy. And But finally, the release of Cyberpunk 2077 has uh, given me the motivation to do it. Um, so what I'm going to be doing today is talking about the theme of Netrunner, um, and just sort of doing a deep read on some aspects of it that I, I think are interesting and trying to say something interesting about the theme of Netrunner. Um, if you only want to listen to me when I'm talking about old worlds, that's fine. I totally respect that. Um, you know, like to be, to be fair, like I didn't think anyone was going to want to listen to that really. So uh, I'm doing a little bit of the same thing with this. I'm too lazy to split it out into a, a different podcast. And yeah, um, I'm, I'm working on 2015. Um, I'm probably sort of halfway through my notes. Probably, probably we'll start getting it out before the end of the year, um, especially when I have some, some free time around the holidays. Um, so you guys have that looked forward to, and I'm definitely going to do 2015 at least. Um, beyond that, so the, the big focus of the theme and Netrunner that I think is interesting is Netrunner and the idea of neoliberalism. Um, which, if that doesn't sound interesting to you, that's fine. Just go next. Um, no, um, I'm you know as as the word neoliberalism implies, I'm going to be talking about politics. If you don't want to hear about politics in Netrunner, if you don't like my politics, it's fine. You don't have to like this. Um, you know, if if you don't think it's interesting, if you don't think I'm right, you can not listen or yell at me, and I'll ignore you. Um, but if, you, if there's any ideas in here you find interesting, um, let me know and I can expand on them more. There's some stuff I go into like insufficient detail because it's, it's too much to cover in, in one episode. Um, so anyway, there are two big, two big core background subjects that to what I want to talk about here. The first is cyberpunk. Um, that, it's the genre that Netrunner belongs to. Um, according to, to one of the flavor people netrunner is cybernor but uh that's i'm gonna, I'm gonna call say that's some cringe shit it's cyberpunk um there's, there's not much more to say about that um so cyberpunk is a genre it originated in like the 1970s um and really sort of the with stuff like uh, phil k dick like ubik blade runner and the movie blade runner um and then the sort of the defining work of cyberpunk which is like the first work that people like yes this is cyberpunk and contains all the core elements of it is neuromancer by william Gibson in 1984. um i'll talk a little bit more about that um but first i want to talk about neoliberalism um and so to start off to talk about neoliberalism i first need to talk about liberalism um because neo implies new liberalism um and so if there's a new liberalism what was the original liberalism um, so liberalism basically starts with John Locke. Um, he was a guy in like the late 1600s, early 1700s in England who wrote, who was an alignment thinker and it was like a period of time where people were rethinking sort of uh, the shape and purpose of government. Um, this started with like Thomas Hobbes um, who wrote the Leviathan. Not really going to talk about that a lot, but Basically, before this point, in the uh, in northeast, in northwest Europe, northeast Europe, uh, 
government was justified by God. Um, you know, sort of God said it gave the kings the divine right to rule in his steed, and that was that was sort of the justification. And all of society was God's plan. You know, like as Drake said, um, where sort of everyone had the role in society, and it was all based around the theoretical backing of it was all about. Um, you know, this was the system that was God's plan and would bring glory to God and all that kind of stuff. And everyone had their role in this greater, greater plan of God. Um, around at this point in time, people are like, whoa, what if there was a different purpose? Um, what if, what if, what if, um, what if, what if we could justify and should justify sort of government without, without God and based in like essentially reason? Um, was sort of the core idealized governing governing principle of the enlightened world. Um, so John Locke comes in and he writes two treatises on government. Um, nobody cares about the first one. Uh, I I was looking up some snippets of it because I hadn't even read it. Um, and I, I read all the second one, which is the important one, uh, in college a while ago. And then I read Wikipedia again to remember everything in greater detail. Um, but the, the Wikipedia summary of... The first treatise is Locke found Fimmel's account of political authority unworkable, arguing that could, it, it could not be used to justify any actual political authority since it was impossible to show that any particular ruler is one of Adam's hairs. Um, I will, I, f I feel like at that point, that's a pretty self-evident argument and we don't really need to, to, go, to go more into that. Um, but basically, the, the second treatise lays out John Locke's view on like what actually would justify government. Um, and basically, uh, I'll read a quote from the Wikipedia article which summarizes pretty well. Uh, in the second treatise, Locke claims that civil society was created for the protection of property. In saying this, he relies on the etymological root of property, Latin propius, or what is one's own, including oneself. Thus by property, he means life, liberty, and estate. Um, by saying that political society was established for the better protection of property, he claims that it serves the private and non-political interest of his constituent members. It does not promote some good that can be only realized in community with others. Um, so there are a bunch of important ideas here. One is that uh, the government is about protecting sort of the atomic unit of society, the individual. That's, you know, that's the, that's, the government is based around... Um, basically, individual freedom for the individuals. Each individual should be able to do with themselves as they wish and with their estate or what we would probably now consider their property, which is an extension of their individual will. Um, and that is the sort of liberal justification for the purpose of government. It's justified insofar as it protects individual rights um, and individual rights include property rights. Um, I read this in college and uh, I, w I would say that this is like one of the big reading how full of shit his justification of private property was was a big moment for me in college. Um, and I think I think this the sentence basically uh, gets to the heart of it. In this way, Locke argues that the full that a full economic system could in principle exist within the state of nature. Property could therefore predate the existence of government and thus society can be dedicated to protection of property. Um, this is just fundamentally not true. Uh, you know, there's a there's a good deal of like historical anthrop and anthropological record and basically property and 
John Locke and the De Enlightenment conception of property, including a state, is just not how any society, I pre pre like pre governmental society organizes themselves. For the most part, there's you know generally a concept of commons, um, and a collective good, and it and sort of sort of um, hunter gatherer societies, which is like really what he's talking about here and uh, nomadic herder tribes um, are basically not big on individual rights um, and I think uh, the other the other big thing is the idea of um, it does not promote some good that can only be realized in community uh, virtue um, and sort of to get back to the justification for feudalism the idea is that like the system of feudal relations was a virtuous system that promoted godliness essentially it promoted godliness in people and you know that's why it was good um and so he writes this in like the late 1600s um and no no one really cares um it doesn't really take off <laughs> like everyone's just like yeah 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 that's that's like fine however it does end up taking off in america with the american revolution um and basically because if you look at liberalism if you don't own property which most people don't um liberalism as an ideology doesn't offer you a lot um and sort of only in america where there was sort of endless land where anyone could get property and sort of uh nominally john Locke, you know part one of co his core justifications for property was that like oh people need to be able to like reject society and go out in the woods and like get some property and like homestead it essentially um which you can act, which you could kind of do in america with the exception that you have to like genocide some natives first but like they didn't think the natives were people um so you can like kind of like squint a little bit and it makes sense then the other big work of liberalism is adam smith's the wealth of nations this is like the 1776 so like a little bit after the american revolution um, you know, which is the American Revolution really popularized the ideas of John Locke. You know, all the leaders of the revolution loved John Locke. Uh, I think I think Jefferson said he was one of the greatest thinkers of all time, along with like Aristotle and like Francis Bacon. I have respect for Francis Bacon. Uh, I think he was Scottish, as usual. I guess Adam Smith was Scottish too. Um, though Adam Smith is a lot better than John Locke. Anyway, I I will I will try and reduce some of the editorializing um and ba basically adam smith wrote this book the wealth of nations and explained that basically the wealth of a nation was in its people and free market economics allowed rational actors in markets to produce optimal outcomes so you want to have a free market which will produce good outcomes for people because people will naturally make decisions in line with the market that produces good outcomes um, this was happening about the same time as early industrialization in the UK. Um, and uh, another thing to note is that he took a lot of his ideas from Muslim theorists. No, no, no dishonor in that, but it's, it's one of those like pretty funny things that, you know, just sort of like modern culture, culture war conservatives think that like Islam is incompatible with freedom, where freedom is heavily implied, you know, and heavily their definitions of freedom are heavily in line with like free markets. You know, which is basically, you know, like a golden age Islam um, was probably sort of the epicenter of like free market ideology 
and probably the most successful free market system of all time in terms of longevity. Um, and so this this book basically did a big thing, which is like sort of flesh out the practicality of globalism, where it's like, yeah, 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 this individual freedom stuff is good, but like, how do you make a operatable society of this? And it's like, okay, like free markets combined with liberalism essentially gets you a functioning society. And as I was saying, these are sort of a lot of a lot of the underpinning of John Locke was theories about how human society and how individual humans work. And it's pretty notable to say that they were mostly wrong. Um, property doesn't exist in a state of nature. Markets are not really a way that people organize in a state of nature. Um, just like most of the early records are like non-market relationships. And the best book to read about this, in my opinion, is like David Graeber's Debt, The First 5,000 Years, which really talks about in depth all the sort of archaeological and anthropological research about like how pre pre-civilization or pre-state societies organize themselves um and really pretty in my mind thoroughly demonstrates that like people do not are not like a market a naturally a market actor and they do not naturally form markets and markets are not a natural expression of human freedom and individuality they are sort of um however even though this isn't the actual state of nature these ideas were aspirational and, you know, they, they were a motivation for a society that could be created. Um, and this gets me to another book, uh, The Great Transformation of Markov Polanyi. It was written in like the 1940s and I think 1944 um, and is about the transformation of the United Kingdoms um, and a little bit France from a, from a, a non-market a non into a market society. I'm going to read Crib from Wikipedia again. Uh, a distinguishing characteristic of the market society is that humanity's economic mentalities have been changed. Prior to the Great Transformation, people based their economies on reciprocity and redistribution across personal and communal relationships. As a consequence of industrialization and increasing state influence, competitive markets were created that undermined these previous social tendencies, replacing them with formal institutions that aimed to promote a self-regulating market economy. Um, which is the, the basic gist of this is the, the liberal subject or the, the idealized homo economist, you know, the guy, the totally rational individualized actor uh, had to be created in order for the market society to happen. Um, the actual process of this, and you can read The Great Transformation if you'd like, or just read the Wikipedia article, involves a great deal of state action. You know, it's an active state project to create the conditions where the market society and the market transformation can happen. You know, sort of, uh, there was this thing called the enclosure of the commons, basically. The, the previous, like, the commons that were sort of communally owned and, like, grazed on by, like, sheep were closed and privatized. Um, and sort of the destruction of like the previous civil society. Um, and basically, you know, you created this great mass of like, you know, peasants who had previously been like tied to their lands, you know, had destroyed their livelihood, had destroyed their communal bonds and sort of tossed them up as this sort of great mass of like proletariat um, who could then move into sort of this market you know they, they would suddenly become market actors with like okay they have to sell their labor to the highest bidder um and basically act in a way that the you know they're and notably they're like property lists so like these people 
you know, if you look at liberalism and you're like, okay, like, how does liberalism look if I don't have any property? All kind of shit, um, to be honest. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to, like, go for that. But if you do own property, you know, you're sort of like, well, this is a lot better. I have a lot more freedom than I did in, like, the previous religious order. And obviously, like, the, the big beneficiaries of, like, the previous um, religious order, you know, like, large feudal landovers were, like, a mix of resistance to this, too busy, like doing the equivalent of like medieval crack on hookers um to really care um and sort of also some of them were just like oh hey like i can use my existing position in society become like one of the one of the like the you know i can become even more powerful by using my like by like becoming a factory owner and investing in factory um anyway i mean you actually like see a certain amount of like at the time sort of resistance is great social transformation like i think the phrase dark satanic mills by william blake just sort of you know really captures like how just sort of like these mills that were just destroying the fabric of society um you know which is like i will say this uh feudal society sucks uh it's not good and it should have been destroyed um you know that's and i think i think i largely think that liberalism ended up leaving something better um and how it led to something better is what i will get into which is marx so marx comes along in the mid 1800s um you know after sort of i would describe like the 19th century as like the the, the liberal century you know just sort of a total transformation of all of european society into liberalism um and sort of liberalization of everything economic liberalization and like uh marx is like coming in and describing this transformation and there's a great work das capital um which was largely in response to adam smith and the liberal transformation um and some of the core like philosophical ideas are like what is individual freedom to the unpropertied labor you know labor freely selling their body to a factory owner you know like if you're just an individual it's like okay this guy will pay me like you know like five cents an hour to break rocks and that guy will break me five, four cents an hour to break rocks i guess it's freedom to pick five cents instead of four cents but you know it's really really not that great of a life and this is all i have and i'm never going to be able to like get enough money to sort of buy property um, whereas like the guy owning the factory is able to like leverage his position um and is you know if he's successful he buys more factories and he buys more factories and all of a sudden you know like the factory owner who was like slightly better at you know making making shirts um is now the only shirt you know owns all the shirt factory and is hugely wealthy um and sort of capital leads to like a further concentration of capital that's part one of the functions of the system of capital and i will say that this is not all bad you know in doing so it drastically increases the productive capacity of society as opposed to sort of the feudal order where like if a landlord invents like some new uh some new like technique that like increases uh the his crop yield by like 10 percent, what happens well he just like throws an extra party every year um he doesn't he can't buy lands you know he can maybe use the extra money and like essentially playing crusader kings to get a better marriage and like merge his land with someone else's but he can't he can't just like buy more land because it's all like nobility grants and shit like that you have to like 
you know, all the land is like divided up in this like feudal system. And sort of this Marx introduces the concept of like bourgeoisie rights, which are rights that are only relative if you have access to property. Um, for example, like what is freedom of the press if you are someone who does not own and cannot afford a printing press? You know, like what it what does it matter that you have freedom of the press? It only matters if you're of a class that can afford a printing press. Um, and so sort of and like notably about this, one of the funny things is um, you know, in the early the early twentieth century you know when you have like working class movements where they don't own like presses uh in the united states you get like a famous ruling where you don't have the right to shout fighter fire in a um in a crowded theater that's the that's the limit of free speech it's like, oh, yeah that's a pretty reasonably that's like you're endangering people with your speech that should be really protected however this is this was used to justify jailing and um supporting socialists who were arguing that the against entering world war one you know arguing against world war one is the equivalent of shouting fire in a crowded theater because you know they're saying oh like world war one's a disaster and it's going to kill a bunch of people and they're like well that's like in danger in the u.s because if the u.s doesn't enter world war one uh i don't i don't even know it doesn't make any sense and it's just a blatant example of how and then basically Marx, one of the things Marx talks about is, okay, so, so you know, so the, the working classes have been atomized from their previous, like, primordial, like, peasant state, and now they're, like, working in these factories, and the social conditions of the factories, um, you know, and he was observing this, this wasn't just a prediction, wherein would create a socially conscious class of laborers who were aware of their existence of a class of people being exploited by another class. They were the working class being exploited by the capital class. And then, unlike feudalism and the serf relationship, the exploited class all work together in a factory where a collective struggle and socializing is possible. So what this means is basically they can go on strike, they can withhold their labor, and in withholding their labor, they can uh, demand concessions from the factory owner. And the factory owner is like, I can't, you know, I'm competing with all these other factory owners. I can't afford everyone going on strike and having this like factory, which is like a huge linchpin in the chain of production going, going under. And so the proletariat does two things with this. One, they're aware of their collective power. If we can all band together and we can all withhold our labor, we can, we can gain power, um, but only as a collective, which means sort of if, if half the people decide not to go on strike, your strike is worthless. They'll just let those half those people work, plus like get some other people in. It's only when you're all able to withhold your labor and shut the factory down that you can get power. Additionally, you know, additionally, basically, you know, they're aware of their exploited status. The peasants, you know, we don't totally know how how the peasants thought of their situation, but we're, you know, we're probably aware of their like exploited situation but we're probably but had a lot less like means towards collective action because the strike basically builds this idea of class consciousness you're aware of your existence as a class and that understanding you only have rights and power as a class as an individual your life is basically uh hellish you know you're like 
selling your body to the highest bidder until eventually misfortune strikes and you're rendered destitute you know and misfortune takes the form of like your arm gets chopped off in a piece of heavy machinery your factory gets out of out competed and goes under uh you know like a ton of stuff uh, you, you eventually just get old and weak uh and so basically the core principle of the working class is the principle of solidarity an injury to one is an injury to all which is the motto of the industrial workers of the world you're only as strong as your weakest member and you cannot let anyone in your group be injured and this is like the theory marx lays out in the 1860s um and what you actually see is over the next like 100 years or so the emergence of the labor party as one of if not the dominant political party form over the next hundred years though notably the usa does not get a labor party though the 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 new deal democrats are like heavily influenced by labor um and one of the big results of labor parties is the demand and institution of the welfare state uh where the state is used to redistribute wealth to the masses um and notably if it's framed as like social security and i was looking up the years the swedish so the first welfare state was the imperial German state where Bismarck instituted it. It's um, a weaker welfare state. German history is complicated, but basically because he was being threatened by the Social Democrats, which is the Socialist Party, uh, coming into power who were demanding this welfare state. Um, and notably, the idea of Social Security is your ability to survive is decoupled from your ability to sell your labor. Um, and so like the, the, I think the Swedish, the Swedish, system is like considered like the modern of the modern welfare state which explicitly grew, grew out of the swedish social democrats and the swedish labor movement um where you know you have a the political party is like dominated by the labor interests and are also like having these strikes in concord with sort of the political system and basically the, the components of the social security system of the welfare state are old age benefits disability benefits unemployment benefits sick benefits and child benefits um, and it's basically a product of the social understanding of labor parties that it was the merest accident of fate that sorts you into the category of work worker or someone incapable of working. You know, they were aware, you know, if you worked in a factory, you probably witnessed someone like literally getting their arm chopped off um, and were aware that like, you know, you really weren't that different than that guy. You weren't special. You know, it was just like it was a happenstance of fate. And it was both this, like, um, and it's important to note, it's not just an expropriation of the capital classes income. It's also a sort of transfer from the healthy to the sick. So sort of, that's what healthcare benefits are. It's a transfer um, of material resources from the working to the non-working. That's what unemployment insurance is. It's a transfer of resources from those who can work to those who don't, which is sort of disability insurance. Um, and... Um, and the welfare state is more than just sort of a individual, the result of an individual conflict over resources between competing classes of people. It's broader than that. It helps people who, who weren't even able to compete because of this broader understanding of the working class. And, and it was both this like understanding of your like, and so it's just like, you can see how just like the, the liberal individual model of of identity just like totally crumbles under the conditions like of the working class you know it's still around but it's sort of 
in like the like 19 like 30 to like 1960 you see those sort of like labor parties largely dominate like democracies and institute sort of like things like the national health service in the uk uh, the social security in the usa then medicare and medicaid the war on poverty all that kind of stuff um and i think i think it's accurate to say that the social democrats in sweden probably represent the most explicit model of like marxist predictions where basically a labor union and gets merged labor unions get merged with the political party that dominates the political system for 40 years you know swedish social democrats are in power continually from 1936 to like 19 late 1970s um, and this is essentially a dictatorship of the proletariat where only working class interests can be represented in government because anything else could not get elected um and you know so this is 1970s i think is is like a, a thing i'll get to with like neoliberalism but first i want to talk a little bit about um so liberalism yeah liberalism under like Locke has a certain like you know he's proposing this idea and then Marx is sort of retroactive like looking at it so Marx has like a lot of advantages like the accuracy of his like ability to like judge it judge it um and so if you, you know USA I'll look at the talk about the USA a little bit because I think it's relevant to like talk about like what this looks like in practice um and so the USA is very explicitly motivated to try and create like a like the the pure lock vision of liberalism um and marx is like you know like liberalism is essentially just like a cover for class conflict where a dominant class uh the bourgeoisie or the capital owners you know the factory owners essentially dominate society and exploit sort of the masses um so if you look at the presidents of 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 the early united states you have george washington um he was a large plantation owner the wealthiest man the largest landowner in the colonies then you get john adams he was a federalist of the sort of hamiltonian fame where they want to like restructure society uh, and create a like sort of northeast industrial foothold industrialize like they see sort of happening in germany or the uk um, and so they are they, they want the government to pursue policies to do this and that's like the sort of northeast and then the democratic republicans coming after that where you had thomas jefferson james madison and then uh and james monroe and they're all these are all virginia large plantation owners who sort of do two things one they expand the country west um and they expand slave states west and so sort of a dominant theme of early sort of u.s history is a competition between these northeast mercantile interests and these like in the southern plantation interests and that's sort of like early u.s history for a while um and both of these sort of have to because it is like a democracy is is link up with sort of broader some sort of broader demands and basically how that works in the usa is you constantly expand west to the frontier of basically the usa is like considered the um the pressure valve of, of u.s history where like anytime there's too much conflict about scarce resources you can always go west you can tell you know this young man who doesn't have any property oh if you go west you can get lands you can fight in a war you can kill some indians and then you'll get lands um that diffuses a lot of like sort of 
conflict over resources in the USA. And so both parties are basically proposing different versions of sort of like Western expansion. Uh, the sort of Southern plantation elite is sort of like, okay, we expand in the South and you too can become a large slave owner and own your own, you know, sort of slave plantation. And the Northern is like, ah, oh, you can expand in the North and you can become like a human farmer. You can be like a small holding farmer who's like totally independent. Um, and both, interestingly enough, both of these traditions have like, justify themselves in, in liberalism you know you think that like slavery is incompatible with liberalism but it's just not um you know just sort of they are arguably the biggest proponents of freedom when you get like An andrew jackson coming along who sought to advance the race of the common man against the corrupt aristocracy and preserve the union which is basically just like even more western expansion i'm gonna quote something from a, a book called the the end of the myth which was about the american frontier um, this is sort of about Andrew Jackson and how he saw his mission. To bring back primitive simplicity and purity, to restore government institutions to what he said was their original minimal designs, the federal government, Jackson said, should be limited to a general superintending power prohibited from restricting human liberty and used only to enforce human rights, chief among them free enterprise and property rights, including the right to own human beings as property. Jacksonians understood freedom as freedom from restraint, including, as Jackson himself insisted on the Natchez Treaty, from authorities telling them they couldn't slave or settle. Describe this as sort of a, a recognizably libertarian conception of minimal government, except that sort of the primary freedoms they are interested in protecting is the um, freedom to genocide inferior populations and take their land, and the freedom to hold slaves. And this is sort of how the South sees itself as the true heir of sort of the, the liberal tradition of the, the Revolutionary War and the American Revolution. Um, you have John Quincy Adams, who's sort of the last of the early, uh, the early sort of revolutionary era presidents, who was like the Northeast mercantile elite. And he was of the opinion that the Democratic Party was controlled by slave interests and wanted to wage war with Mexico to ex further expand slavery, which was true. And that's why he only served one term, is because those slave interests won. And if you look at, like, U.S. history, it's just like, wow, this really is just, like, conflict between various concentrated economic interests. Because, you know, when you, if you act as an individual, sort of, a person with a vast amount of wealth can, like, hire a bunch of people to basically, hey, you guys... Uh, say what I want you guys write papers about what I want and if you're just like oh I'm just like a farmer no one cares what you think you're just an individual like you're just one guy which all brings us to a neoliberalism which is what I wanted to talk about and you know as usual everything took longer to talk about than I thought and so the capitalist class in like the 1970s which had dominated the politics of the liberal area had suffered under the regime of social democracy which had high union density and high taxes and it was getting a smaller slice of the pie and pretty much smaller every day um keynesianism and social democracy like prevented the total destruction of ca the capitalist class you know as you see in the soviet union which represents sort of like the the extreme marxist view um they still represented like a concentrated web of power and wanted to get back to a world without you know, an 85% marginal tax rate and without sort of mass. And over probably, probably something like 1970s, they essentially start to win. Um, and 
you get the neoliberal turn um, and I can talk about it in most depth in the USA though it's basically across most of the Western industrialized world this happens where you get a re-entrenchment of liberalism taxes get lower labor parties become undominant um, and part of this is that you know as we talked about the original liberal subject had to be created and the capitalist class is okay we need to recreate the liberal subject we need to re-atomize society because sort of a collective working class understanding of the world had defeated us or had you know had somewhere between got into a stalemate and defeated um everywhere once everyone sees themselves as an individual actor the capitalist class was represents like sort of concentrated economic power which can marshal a ton of resources for the gold the capitalist class becomes triumphant and is again able to dominate the political system um and there's like a, i think there's like two big explanations on like why this was able to be happened you know obviously like you know, I think, like, the Koch brothers is, like, a good example of, like, um, in the USA, or just, like, a good example of, like, how the capitalist class was acting at this point in time, and, like, trying to, like, you know, sending a ton of money to, like, universities to, like, create a new theory and, like, indoctrinate the youth into, like, and trying to create, like, a new liberal order. You know, they, these people were, like, the coaches, we don't think of liberals, but, like, they were basically liberals um, in terms of, like, classical liberalism as people like to say um and that's you know basically what classical liberalism looks like is large wealthy interests dominating society in practice um and so basically the rough trend about the economy under industrialization has been you start off with like you know 90 percent of your population in agriculture either like subsistence or like you know there's some surf um and you sort of in, start to industrialize where uh, agriculture becomes way more efficient and a lot of those people work to like go into manufacturing and manufacturing becomes more and more efficient and basically you're able to produce more and more goods basically using electricity um, and at a certain point um, and I think I think you can read some interesting Marxist literature about this and his predictions around this I don't really have like a strong opinion I haven't read enough to really know but essentially what what happens is you see this large shift to the service sector from manufacturing where all of a sudden the service sector um becomes the primary form of unemployment of employment um as opposed to either agriculture or manufacturing um and service sector basically refers to like things ranging from like uh a, a cook you know a, a chef rancher uh, a worker and like a uh, like a nurse a doctor a lawyer like all that sort of stuff where you're providing a service you're not making something so the service sector yeah i think is like mixed between sort of a like working class component you know like if you're a server in a restaurant you probably share a lot of the same immiseration that a like factory worker would have had you know it's a little bit less dangerous but it's mostly it's pretty miserable you know like uh you know about when this is happening like working working in a restaurant is probably more miserable than working in a factory because sort of you don't have all that like labor union stuff um that got working conditions to a pretty good spot um and so basically produces the condition of the proletariat without the ability of, like striking in power um and it, it basically if you think about like a restaurant is like a single restaurant you can't really just organize like one restaurant first off like it's a very flimsy business model. It's very easy to send a restaurant out of business. You know, if you organize a restaurant, it's probably going to go into business. 
um, and it's this huge fight as opposed to like a factory where they had this huge capital investment and they cannot afford to have that capital go out of business um, you know it's a building probably like you know millions of dollars of machinery all that sort of stuff and so sort of like the two parts of the equation the shared sense of oppression and the shared sense of power as a class um, you lose half of that the notably um, teachers and nurses unions are some of the most radical unions in the USA um, and notably are largely the most female and ethnically diverse unions and so it's it's sort of there's a variety you know service and sector encompasses a lot of things and the other thing is that you have the professional class so the professional class is basically like a lawyer um, it's sort of like me, uh, you know, sort of college educated, working in a job that requires a college. Um, and so the educated class has always been like a hotbed of liberalism because sort of the liberal model of liberatory markets kind of works for the educated class. And I've like experienced this, you know, like, um, you know, I work in tech. I get like, I can probably change my job if I want to work on something else, which is like not true for a lot of people without like, you know, I would probably not even take a pay cut. Um, to like work on something I'm more interested in um, and sort of I can go freelance and define my own like working conditions and have a reasonable pay. However, uh, and you know, you can see like our boy Sneaky Sly, he was like able to like quit his job and work on like a personal project um, and it doesn't ruin him. You know, sort of if he had failed, uh, dad, he still would have been fine. You know, he would have gotten like another job in tech again and do something else. And so sort of like, the you know like things operate for like the professional class and like r roughly the way um sort of like adam smith would, would think about it and would you know a dream of the like professional class utopia that being said um i think there's like an increasing proletarianization or, or turning into like working class conditions of the professional class um because basically professional class conditions work only when there isn't like a labor surplus in that field and you see a lot of um you see a lot of fields starting to get labor surpluses and all of a sudden like uh you know freelancing kind of sucks because you don't know when your next gig is it's hard to get a gig you know like things are stressful you instead of being liberatory to be able to choose your job and working conditions you have to take whatever jobs you can get whenever you can get it um and it kind of sucks and it ends up destroying working conditions because you don't have any leverage to sort of like a company can take you or leave you. You have no ability to like go somewhere else because, you know, sort of there's you and 10 other people trying to get that job. Um, and then you've, you've basically been turned into like the classical working class without any leverage and without any ability to like talk to your fellow workers and like form a union. And that being said, you know, and there's also like, uh, you know, like I think grad student unions come to mind where there's, uh, been a huge increase in like grad student unionization as like a recognition that they're being like pretty heavily exploited instead of sort of having like a liberal aesthetic around things um anyway and then so like i think two of the core neoliberal documents are this thing called the washington consensus um, which i'll read wikipedia again the washington consensus is a set of 10 economic policy prescriptions considered to constitute the standard reform package promoted for crisis rack developing countries by washington DC-based institutions such as the IMF, Inter International Monetary Fund, World Bank, and United States Treasury Department. Prescriptions encompass policies in such area as macroeconomic stabilization, economic opening with respect to both trade and investment, and the expansion of market forces into the domestic economy. 
and which is basically saying this is how you have to do economics economic questions are no longer political questions this is this is the only way you're allowed to do economics you can no longer have a political party that's sort of uh you know nationalizing resources or like subsidizing you have to like have a liberal model um of development and it's important to note that as a developmental model the washington consensus is like pretty much a complete disaster um sort of in the last 40 years since the the washington consensus came the dominant model uh sort of the third world which is like sort of the non-industrialized world has largely failed to industrialize which is really the key to sort of increasing the productive capacity of the society um and then on top of that sort of the global poverty rates have been pretty much stagnant in the last 40 years with a single exception which is china um, who has lifted 800 million people out of poverty in the last 40 years um, and they have done so sort of with sort of a, a state-directed capital economy um, you know there's been like some liberalization but of the like 10 policy protection of the washington consensus they've done like two of them largely run like a protectionist economy heavily focused on sort of national industrial development additionally you have this this work called the end of history and the last man which is by american political science francis fukuyuma um, which basically is in the aftermath of the cold war which argues that the ascendancy of the western liberal democracy which occurred after the cold war and the dissolution of the USS ussr humanity had reached not just the passing of a particular period of post-war history but the end of history as such that is the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of western liberal democracy as the final form of human government which is to say uh liberal markets are the final form of economics and liberal democracy is the final form of human government there is nothing else you are all liberal actors you, all political all economic questions are off the table uh of politics and a lot of political questions are now off the table um and and you know as i said with sort of the original sort of creation of the liberal subject with sort of the destruction of community bonds uh neoliberal policy has also had state policy um trying to recreate the perfect atomized liberal actor one of the interesting things about this is you know uh, states are massively relative are relatively massive relative to where they were at you know in like the the liberal times um the u.s government which is like a relatively small government in the industrialized sphere is directing something like 30 percent of the gdp you know and like i think i think like in terms of like direct resource marshalling of the central state in like the 1700s you're talking about like two percent gdp uh, depending on exactly how you count it I mean, a great example of sort of like where this takes you is sort of the American, the ACA, um, the sort of USA healthcare bill, where the state creates this marketplace where everyone is supposed to be the perfect idealized consumer, um, you know, as opposed to the old sort of national healthcare vision where you show up with a card and you get healthcare. Um, that's all you do. You know, you're just like, okay, I had the national health insurance, give me my healthcare. And they're like, okay or like hey come back in like two weeks yada 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 instead you have to spend all this time looking at the you know shopping for the best deal figuring out the best like optimal plan and it's essentially forcing people to act as the idealized liberal actor you know the re recreation of like these market actors 
Um, the other like big neoliberal policy example is sort of in the Iraq War, everything was subcontracted out. You know, instead of the military having like the core capacity of like army and their troops, instead we have to like subcontract everything to like businesses that make all this stuff. The vision of freedom is the vision of freedom as the be the ability to choose things on the marketplace versus the collective freedom of like not having to worry about getting sick. You know, sort of I'm able to just spend my time with my loved ones. I don't have to worry about this dumb, you know, what healthcare plan. I just show up with a card and I get it and it saves me a bunch of time. Um, and I think Corey Robin has a great essay about this. Um, and I think I think it's like pretty compelling. Um, and I think that I, I identify much more strongly with sort of the, the social democratic vision of freedom or just sort of like, I, wanna, I don't want to spend my time just like picking through this marketplace and bullshit. Uh, just give me my health care. That's, that's all I want. Don't make me worry about like, oh, how's my healthcare status going to change if I lose my job? You know, freedom is being free from like the, the worry of like how fate can strike you down. You know, you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, losing an arm, getting terribly sick, uh, getting old and not being able to like derive, you know, material resources. Like you just get material resources as a function of being human. So this finally brings us to, to cyberpunk. Cyberpunk, you know, as I talked about way at the beginning, Neuromancer, 1984, sort of at the time of sort of the changing to the new neoliberal order from the old social democratic order, the old welfare state model. Um, and I can't tell how much he like saw the future and how much he just like did a lot of drugs and channeled the spirit of the moment into like a remarkably prescient novel um, and sort of Again, cribbing from Wikipedia, cyberpunk is sort of the mix of high-tech with low-life. Sort of the core aspects of the cyberpunk universe are sort of corporations dominate and the government is barely a presence in people's lives. Sort of body modifications, uh, you know, cybernetics, gene splicing, and hacking, I think, I think. Um, and sort of, I think... Contrary to like Marx and just a general lot of general thinkers who saw technological progress and industrialization as positive and building for towards um, the the liberated humanity where sort of communism happens and everyone's material needs are met, we instead get this world where it's high tech but everything sucks and everything will suck forever. Um, and I would say it's dystopian in the sense that mass politics are over and you're stuck in this hell forever. There is no possible of changing the situation because, you know, sort of it's a permanent liberal world order. You know, this is the this is what the end of history actually looks like. Corporations dominate politics. You can't change anything and you just try and get by as best you could. And insofar as you resist, it's into sort of individual struggle of sort of individual enlightenment through body modification which is sort of, again, it's not available to everyone. It costs money or it costs cleverness. You have to be clever to get access to this stuff, which is the same as hacking. Hacking is like a way for an individual without much power to gain a lot of power, but it's not a way for a class of people to get power. Individual liberation is available, but it's only for those with money or only with cleverness. Um, and sort of everyone is isolated and has internalized their individual freedom um, and sort of, which means corporations who are just like 
able to like pay a bunch of people like vote they want or just like you know blast out whatever they want dominate the political system which finally takes us to netrunner um and so all that stuff was just sort of general it's like cyberpunk as a discipline and so you're a hacker you're trying to interfere with the corporation's plans you do so by blowing stuff up and trashing things um and notably as like uh as like a narrative no matter what you do mbn is still there at the end of the day sort of win lose or draw the corporation you know is still there there are other divisions you're only ever taking on making news and making news outlasts you you maybe like keep them from like meeting their quarterly goals and get someone fired but you don't actually interfere with the systemic functioning of capitalism um and you know to take an example of this like we take the card turtlebacks which are manufactured sort of sentient space slaves designed to exist in the tortured existence of the vacuum of space i um, mean you, you know you like you don't try and liberate the slaves you know you sort of trash them which is i guess to say i would interpret that as you blow up their life support systems to keep the corporation from gaining benefit from them um which is you know this isn't like a positive liberatory struggle you're not trying to create a new world where the slaves are free you're basically just you're, you're just trying to keep mbn from putting ads on the moon i don't really want there'd be ads on the moon i think it'd be a bummer to look up at the sky and see ads on the moon you know just sort of like a total control of the world by these forces but i would rather have ads on the moon and no slaves than slaves and no ads on the moon um and i think there's like the mumbad cycle has like the clearest example of what political struggle looks like in the android universe it's the most political of the cycles um i think there's some stuff in like mars and the mars cycle but i think mumbad is more interested um so basically the mumbad cycle you know one of the core examples is they contain these four political assets Bioethics Association, Commercials Bankers Group, Clone Suffrage Movement, and Sensi's Actors Union. Um, I think, as well as sort of not labeled political, but Mumbad City Hall and Voting Machine Initiative. And so, sort of overwhelmingly, the corporations control the political process. And I think of these, Clone Suffrage Movement is the most interesting. Um, largely because I think we have a pretty analogous historical struggle to the Clone Suffrage Movement. So first off, it's a court card, um, and we can sort of say, okay, so like let, let's look at the the fight to end slavery, which is like basically what this is about. Um, and you know, sort of as I was saying, a lot of early American history is like in my mind best understood as a fight between different factions of economic interests. You know, the Southern aristocratic planter elite versus um, versus the Northeast industrialists. Um, and sort of, this was like the Democratic Republicans versus the, the Federalists and the Whigs. Um, and sort of both allied with sort of the human farmer with Western expansion to get votes. But the forces dominating the decision-making process were the elite economic interests. Um, and then sort of slavery existed in like an uneasy balance, you know, sort of the South wanted to expand slavery as much as possible. And I think there's a book called This Vast Southern Empire um, about this, which is sort of the war on Texas, uh, a lot of the wars of expansion, especially against Mexico, were fought to expand slavery. Um, and there was like, the North was like largely, didn't like slavery, but they were not as opposed to slavery as the South was for it. And this exists as 
basically the South expanding slavery in the North, not liking it, but it not being their chief political issue until um, this event called Bleeding Kansas. Um, so there was this thing called the Missouri Compromise, which is no slavery above the 36th parallel, um, which is sort of the truce between the North and the South. And then Kansas is a state uh, above the 36th parallel. And the president at the time, I forget who it was, um, basically made the compromise that, okay, we're going to get rid of the Missouri Compromise and we're going to let popular sovereignty decide. Kansas will get to vote on whether or not um, whether or not they're a slave state. Bleeding Kansas happens where basically a, a, a primordial civil war breaks out between people rushing in from the north, abolitionists, uh, to fight people rushing in from the south, uh, essentially like rock the vote. And a ton of violence breaks out. This is where John Brown gets his start. Um, and it's just this event that like shocks the nation. People are getting killed. People are shooting each other. It's just mass extrajudicial political violence. Um, and it's like pretty close to a civil war. And this is like 19, 1953 or 54. Um, and at this point, slavery just becomes an existential threat to all of the North because there was no buffer zone of slavery anymore. The South was going to expand slavery faster than the North expanded. Um, and what's more, they were going to flood the zone of every new territory with slave owners. And instead of this balance, this uneasy balance and this uneasy truce, you were getting this like state where the South was just going to win. The entire rest, you know, the, the entire Western territories would become slave states. You know, South was like planning on invading Mexico, all of the Caribbean, and just they had this plan called the Golden Circle, um, where they were going to have a golden circle of slavery from Brazil up through Central America, Mexico, the Caribbean, and the South of slave states that would sort of become a glorious slave future that would dominate politics forever and the be the end of history you know, of, of the southern aristocracy of slave interests. And sort of this becomes apparent and becomes unignorable from the North now. And so, you know, whereas like, they didn't really like it. All of a sudden, if you're a person in the North, slavery becomes an existential threat because, you know, once they're done expanding into the West, you have to compete with all of this. There's no more land for you. You can't compete with, like, you know, a large plantation owner expanding his plantations into the West. Um, and you get, in a very rapid point of time, the rise of the Republican Party, um, which is essentially a single-issue anti-slavery party encompass of the entire north um, and it's an alliance between like the northern masses and the northern industrialists where like the slavery economic model is a, an existential threat to like the mercantile elite as well as an existential threat to sort of everyone you know because if this is not stopped eventually everyone will be a slave or dead or a master and most likely you're not going to be a master um, and if you look at if you look at the the fight, you know, and this is like the, the most al- analogous struggle, where sort of, um, and you get a runner card, freedom through equality, um, and so this struggle is a union between um, the interests of the masses who are like, wow, uh, clones 
who are essentially clone slaves represent an existential threat to us. You know, and so, so you see this as the fight against clone slavery is an alliance between sort of the masses who see freedom only stemming from equality, sort of to get back to the principle of solidarity. You know, you're ultimately you will end up as however the weakest member of your class ends up because you have no protections and you're only have as much leverage as they have. And so if you don't end if you don't end slavery you will eventually become a slave because that economic system will come to dominate and subordinate any other economic system you know combined with sort of hp sort of the competing labor labor ready interest i will say um i have i have not i'm of the opinion that the bioroids are conscious and are also essentially slaves though i think I think there's a little more wiggle room here, and I would say clones are definitely slaves. Uh, there's no question about that in my mind, and I would I would come down on the argument that that the the bioroids are as well, but I don't think there's really definitively enough text either way to. But so you know the HB clone suffrage movement card combined with the freedom through equality sort of represents the political struggle, but overall sort of politics is dominated by competing corporate interests. Um, and the people have very little say and are not, you know, are not organized around like labor politics. Except we have one example of someone in the networking universe coming from labor politics, which is Ed Kim. Ed Kim is an interesting character. Um, he basically has like two pieces of flavor text about him. One on his card, my only regret is that androids cannot feel my hate. And two on the card, human first, which is sort of a, a human supremacist organization. Uh, they showed me that I wasn't broken. I am still a whole human. No, how no matter how many limbs I lose, the golems are our enemy, as well as anyone who values efficiency of profit more than human life. So I think there are like two thematic elements of Edcam. One is uh, he's essentially like a neo ludite slash a robot racist. Again whether or not he's a racist comes down to like the question of robot consciousness i i stem towards them being conscious and then the other theme is i am still human and worthwhile even if i'm disabled and cannot provide valuable labor you know and and that goes into he's he's missing a hand and he consciously chooses not to get a cybernetic implant um because he is saying my my productivity and my ability to provide value for the marketplace does not define me as a human um, and I would say that both of these thematic elements are true, um, but they don't really work together. Um, you know, people in the labor movement where are often driven to like racist protectionism of their sort of relatively privileged position, where it's just like, okay, I have a job, and they're bringing in like Hispanic strike breakers or black strike breakers, which is like a thing that happened often in American history, or you know, even like Italian strike breakers or Polish or you know. Americans are infinite in their their love of racism, you know. But that but that racism is driven com by competition, and if you're saying, you know, that you don't have to compete to be worthwhile and you shouldn't compete, and you're rejecting competing by not getting a hand replacement, and then how can you hold this position? Because you're not defending your privileged position. So, I I, I think I think these two ideas are sort of incompatible with each other, and I think there's like an interesting way to go with sort of the first one is like okay 
you know, maybe maybe labor struggle still exists in this universe, but the only only aspect of the labor struggle that moves into hacking, which is sort of, as I discussed earlier, is sort of like a dead end of neoliberal struggle, um, where they cannot fundamentally cannot and will not change the world, um, are the, the racists, you know, the people who take this and are like individualize it instead of collectivizing their their status. Um, and I will all, you know, as I've talked about a bit, like disability benefit is the core benefit of the welfare state. It's one of the you know, standard benefits, you know, you don't deserve to suffer just because you happen to be unable to sell your labor to the marketplace. Um, people's most fundamental worth is not in their productive capacity or their ability to exist in market relations, but some sort of inherent, um, I would argue social capacity as a human to be part of a collective. You know, there's probably a lot of different, um, there's probably a lot of different views on like where fundamental human worth comes from people who lose an arm are still fundamentally valuable whereas sort of a classical liberal conception they're not you know they're just they're just like well like you're not worthwhile to society you know you're not you can't you can't get any property you aren't able to like provide for yourself you know sort of the only way you can provide for yourself is by imposing on the freedom of those who can by taking from them um and sort of that's sort of the liberal position. Um, and sort of, it's also interesting that sort of anarchism is the chief political ide ideology in, in of the runners and netrunner. Sort of, there's no socialist runners. There's, um, and I think, I think Chomsky argues that anarchism is like the ultimate liberal ideology, which is sort of the state fundamentally cannot protect individual liberty. So you must create a stateless society that's totally cooperative. Um, and I think, I think Chomsky is... You know, I fundamentally am not a liberal. I don't believe in liberalism. Um, I think it's, you know, essentially like a failed ideology. But I think I think if you're going to do it, I, I respect the, the Chomsky view um, and sort of anarcho-signalism, which is like the most, the closest to gaining power of any anarchist ideology and able to like create a functioning system um, is sort of, is a collective labor-based movement. I will say that much at least. Um, and so the, one of the other big areas in, in Netrunner is space, aka the final frontier. Um, and I think this is like important where it's sort of, as, as I was saying, the frontier has always acted in America as sort of a, a, a way to alleviate social conflict between over scarce resources by saying land is infinite. You can always go west, young man. You can always go and find more resources and then you know it and i would say that it's a it's a third way ideology which is you know a way to describe ideologies that are not neither capitalism nor socialism where these these two systems don't have to come in conflict the welfare state is often called like a third way system there are proponents of socialist thought that say it's a means to the end of eventually abolishing capitalism and if you're interested in like how that would look like the minor plan in sweden was an attempt to do that but it got, um, you know, when the when the socialists lost power, it got destroyed. Um, and then the other the other big third way ideology is fascism, which essentially proposes a compromise between social between the working class and um, the capital class by essentially recreating America. You ameliorate class conflict by constantly expanding at the expense of an inferior race to get land to ameliorate. You know, so the, the fascists invade, like, Poland, 
um, in France, you know, and then their goal was like uh, basic, and then eventually Russia with their goal being, okay, we're going to kill all the Slavs there um, and create a German frontier in the in the division of the American frontier. Um, and so space kind of represents that um, in American imagination. It's like, hey, space colonization, it's going to sort of we can revive the frontier we we don't we don't have to contend with class conflict we can sort of the constant stream of land lets us get around that you know obviously this is ultimately a lie um there's always conflict over scarce resources and land is not the only scarce resource um and i think i think a good card about this is like space camp which is cute it's the promise of exploration to a kid you know you sort of say you sort of inculcate the youth with the idea hey um when you grow up instead of instead of dreaming of a better position in society go go to space you know go to the unclaimed land and, and homestead um then one of the other space cars that comes to mind is gagarin um i would say there is zero chance zero chance an american running wayland would call anything gagarin um they would have then this like buzz aldron or whatever uh you know sort of there's the american conception is that the most the americans won the space race because they went to the moon ignoring you know like yuri gagarin was the first man in space um yeah i i just like i don't really buy that they wouldn't like be like oh no like the important thing was getting to the moon because that's the thing our capitalist corporation like us and that's you know how we view ourselves you know, the moon is the real struggle and allows space colonization is a setup for that instead of you know sort of launching you know like in reality like the most important aspect of going to space are satellites um which you basically got way before that um there's probably a lot more interesting to say about space um but that's this is what i have to say about it um one of the other big subjects is hyper reality which is an idea by john bullard apologies to my french listeners for just not knowing how to say friendship um hyper reality um, this, again, Wikipedia, just cribbing all this shit from Wikipedia, is basically the idea, the inability of a consciousness to distinguish reality from simulation of reality, especially in technologically advanced postmodern societies. Hyperreality is seen as a condition in which what is real and what is fiction are seamlessly blended together so that there is no clear distinction between where one ends and the other begins. It allows the commingling of physical reality with the virtual reality and human intelligence with artificial intelligence. Um, I don't really have much to say behind that. Um, you know, this is obviously massively present in Netrunner. I don't really have anything interesting to say on top of, like, the idea that part of the neoliberal order is giving everyone the ability to produce their individualized vision, um, with, you know, sort of technology. Instead of, like, allowing you to go to the moon, you watch the Avengers. Um, instead of being liberated... And being everyone being able to travel in their all free time and see the beautiful forests of this world, um, you can only see Avatar. The sort of real has been replaced by the hyper real because the hyper real is more scalable. Um, and then I think one of the other big categories I want to talk about is reproductive labor, which is um, the term has taken on a role in feminist philosophy and discourse as a way of calling attention to how women in particular are assigned to the domestic sphere where the labor is reproductive and thus uncompensated and unrecognized in the capitalist system. Unrecognized is a key aspect of this and reproductive labor is largely unrecognized in, in Netrunner. 
Um, I found, like, I think there are, like, there's Maryland campaign, um, which I think is, like, the, the most notable domestic um, card in Netrunner, which is, like, a robotic nanny. And one of the things that comes to mind here is the, like, there's the monkey experiment where they have a monkey that provides sustenance but is ugly and wire and uncomfortable and a monkey that is, and a mother monkey that is soft. And baby monkeys will cling to the soft, comforting one um, and only go to get sustenance when they need it and then run back to the comforting mother, which was sort of like a key, a key uh, research in the social sciences that people have an innate desire for comfort and it's you know the mother the, the 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 relationship between the child and the mother is not just one of uh physical need but like social need and i think this robotic nanny brought that to mind to me because it's like you know it's kind of it's not comforting um and i think there's a certain extent to which the netrunner order has unlearns the knowledge that physical comfort is needed to raise healthy human beings um and I think the the erasure of the domestic sphere is, I think, an important aspect of that, where capitalism is sort of relies on this labor that produces people, but is unable to have a capitalist model of human production, and so it relies on the unpaid labor of women. Um, and then I think the other the other ones are symmetrical visage, which has the flavor text of born for success, um, which is to say, I. Uh, you genetically engineer your child so they will be successful and the, they'll be as able to win in the competition of life as possible. You know, just sort of neoliberalism at its core, individual success and individual um, competition. You know, and competition is good and allows for individual flourishing instead of a child becomes good and worthwhile of success because of good genetics and not because of the inherent the fact that everyone deserves a good life just by a function of our ability to provide it and inherent human dignity. Um, and then one of the other ones is Jackson Howard, who I think is described as the head of child programming. I think that's in the world of androids, which, which I don't really accept as, as core canon of Netrunner because it's nerd shit. Um, and not something, not something that's part of the core experience of what you get playing the game of Netrunner. You know, which is the cards, how you play them, as well as what the cards say in the art. And Jackson Howard is, says, It's my job to ensure our creations are the perfect commands and edutainment for tomorrow's consumers. Um, and so there's a decent amount of, like, education stuff in in MBN, which I think is interesting and important for a couple of reasons. There's, like, Asmari EdTech, which is the idea that, you know, one of the... There's been, like, a big effort to, like, privatize education with the idea that competition will bring value. Um, with like, charter schools, essentially. I mean, this is like mostly nonsense, but there's a there's a sort of secondary effect to this. MBN is not just the edu- education corporation. They have like a subsidiary, Asmari, which specializes in it, but they are making education materials as part of a broader corporation. And so you get the idea of edutainment, um, which is to say, and sort of forging the, the new consumers of the next generation. So MBN has a broader interest in how it is educating people, you know, sort of in this, like, in the idealized competition sphere, sphere of education, uh, a corporation will be successful in this sphere insofar as they're able to, like, provide the best education to kids that, you know, prepare them to compete in the, the marketplace as best as possible. And that's, you know, sort of what a successful education looks like in the neoliberal vision of education. 
which is sort of contrary to some of the original founding of like public education in the United States, which are sort of more founded in the idea of some broader civic purpose and sort of that uh, a sort of a vision of civic America where, okay, education is necessary for uh, democracy to flourish. And instead we can sort of get the, the modern um, like sort of neoliberal conception of, okay, education is giving you the tools to compete in the marketplace as best as possible. Um, and then secondarily, MBN has sort of broader interests than just providing this direct product. They want to make sure people consuming their education products will turn into the idealized consumer who will exist in the MBN ecosystem of sort of ads and sort of consumer behavior. Um, which is to say, you know, like there's a pretty common principle where sort of you provide some service for free in order to get people into sort of your real products where you make all your money and say so you're maybe having MBN subsidize the cost of their education in order to sort of have an education product that is programming sort of consumers as they would like them to be which is sort of a very scary idea and one of the big problems with sort of education privatization is that it's not just a, a like you know, sort of education is about building sort of the citizens of the world and having the power to build the citizens is a very big business opportunity. Um, and you see people like Bill Gates who are sort of heavily involved in education. You know, he like portrays it as philanthropy and I don't really know whether or not that's how he views it, but he still sort of has a certain conception on what kind of people he wants to create through education. And, you know, he's probably not sort of uh, maliciously deciding he wants to do a thing, but he has a certain conception what the purpose of education is. And it's pretty dangerous as a society to sort of say, okay, we're just going to like let powerful economic interests decide sort of education curriculum and sort of what people are taught and why they're taught it. Um, and it's actually like a huge problem with the present state that education is like seen as the main vehicle for improving the lives and the masses and no the answer is as it has always been material redistribution of resources yeah that's 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 how you improve the lives of the masses you don't educate them so they're better able to compete life does not need to be a competition we have enough productive capacity and material resources that nobody needs to starve nobody needs to struggle um, the welfare state is massively able to better able at comp, uh, accomplishing this task than than education is not that education isn't worthwhile but just that education is not about preparing you for success education is just sort of a value in itself so i think i think i think never could have done more with education i think it's an interesting area and sort of it would have been interesting to explore how exactly mbn is using uh Sort of, if I was doing this, I would have a lot of cards looking at how MBN is creating the the, the neoliberal, the neoliberal subject. One last thing, which is not crazy connected to a lot of else of what I talked about, is Guru, who is one of my favorite characters in Netrunner because he's an extreme cornball. Let me read the text of of Torch to you. The core of the grid, a blinding sphere of light, teeming with energy, crackling with flame. Beyond were only twinkling bits of data in a field of darkness. No hacker dared approach the core except one. He came back with a flare of code, torched the burned with the fire of the core itself. 
the dark place of cyberspace where dark no more and the legend of guru is born the internet is extremely melodramatic you look at like anonymous uh they they take they take their name from like the bible passage about uh we are many we are a legion yada 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 um this is like sort of taking itself as the legend of prometheus you know casting himself as one of the great actors of history uh guru is not one of the great actors of history he's a cornball and i think i'm gonna talk about myself here a little bit in that like i think the internet really promotes promotes this environment of self-mythologizing where you just like sort of say like i i was the great man who brought fire to earth creating a whole new universe and you can imagine yourself as sort of the protagonist of of sort of everything um, and the internet really lets you do that when really like all we do is argue about proka <laughs> you know or sort of and i you know they, i like how they have a lot of like snippets of like chat logs in sort of their um their their flavor test and i wish they had done more of that of sort of really focusing on like oh hey these, these guys are really they like treat themselves as like these great people doing this great stuff but really they're just kind of you know hobbyists playing a network tournament more or less you know they're just like a bunch of you know people in a hobby who talk to each other and you know have a good time but like really aren't doing much um but sort of it's easy to see yourself as sort of prometheus you know it's a cat and the internet really promotes sort of this melodrama and just i i brought fire i did this great thing you know i taught people how to like break hackers i taught people you know the value of click efficiency and it's yeah it's like this is all fine as long as you just sort of understands what you're doing and not sort of it's fun to self-mythologize but we're not we're not caesar casting the die we're just sort of we're just sort of some people who spend too much time online this really gets to sort of you know there's this idea of the great man view of history where great men are deciding the fate as opposed to like the marxist view where for the most part structural forces are shaping what can happen and if you look sort of a lot of early u.s history a lot of the people who ended up president and in charge you know would like write about how they didn't really like slavery they were opposed but the structural forces that put them in power and dominated the political system said that slavery had to exist and slavery had to expand um, and that the individual moral qualms about slavery were no match um, were no match for sort of the structural forces of society and I you know I, I ultimately take the Marxist view on this that it's there are no there are mostly not great men in history there are structural forces which tightly dictate the possibilities um, and they're only there's only class conflict that is the only way forward to become conscious of our existence as a class of people and anyway in conclusion um cyberpunk is dystopian and netrunner is dystopian because it represents the end of mass politics all you can think about is your you know, technology has not created the star trek liberated state where there's no um where there's no money there's there's just slurred off like there's no want everything every need our net even though we can meet every need we don't so I guess to end on the question of what is to be done, as we have a time machine, it is, as it has always been, the right thing to do to stop the Lincoln assassination. A truly one of the few great men of histories 
who was in a scenario unshackled by sort of forces. The, the forces locking US, the USA into slavery had been defeated. The masses in the North were organized into a politically conscious body, the Northern Armored, and the South could have been reshaped. But he was assassinated, Andrew Johnson came to power, reinstated the planter class instead of appropriating the resources and giving every everyone every former slave 40 acres and a mule that is what we do if we have a time machine if you don't have a time machine however um i would say that sort of the future of american politics is both bright and dark and that there's a growing recognition by the youngs that sort of the the liberal order has failed and that um the life they were promised is not there education is not attaining it and sort of demand for things such as medicare for all a broader welfare state a reinstatement of social democracy there are you know obviously forces resisting sort of this sort of transformation or this sort of this sort of reinstatement of social democracy um, but i would say on the flip side of that there are a lot of forces who are reacting to a lot of the failure of the global order with um you know dark ethno-nationalism and violence um and sort of the choices as they always have been are socialism or barbarism and it's the political goal of the next 20 or 30 years to to turn this growing dissatisfaction into sort of a, a social democratic or socialist political movement that can take power um, and outside of all of this, I hope people have found this episode interesting, contains some interesting nuggets here and there, even if, like, um, maybe you don't agree with all of it or are mad at me. Yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'm working on sort of the next round of Time Travelers Guys 2015, um, and I'm hoping to some stuff out starting before the end of the year. So, yeah. And if you, there's anything here you want me to expand upon or you thought were interesting or, like, even if you're like, hey, I don't think, I don't think, I don't understand what you said, or I don't think it was supported, or like, um, depending on how you approach me, I will probably respond to you, unless you're just like, though I think with what I said about Guru, um, I will, I'm trying to do less tilting at windmills online, and sort of mainly talking in conversations I think are productive with people who like broadly agree, but maybe have questions on specifics, um, or sort of part of a building a project of of solidarity rather than a project of yelling at the people who upset you i guess i'll end on that you know i think the immortal piece of advice to not be guru except insofar as you enjoy play acting as guru as long as you're conscious of the fact you are play acting as guru and not actually prometheus